Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, September 9th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Paul. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writer Y Train Bowie. Hey, everyone. Okay, I am back. I just came back from Orlando. Uh, Chris is still gone. He is in Toronto at the Toronto International Film Festival. And uh, Jacob, you're preparing for Fantastic Fest. When does that begin? Oh, goodness. A uh, week from Thursday. So it's going to be me and Chris this year. So Chris will be gone for another stretch of time. But I'm very excited. It's my favorite week of the year when it comes to work events. Okay. Uh, let's jump into what we've been doing. Uh, as I mentioned, I did travel to Orlando, Florida. I, I just avoided Hurricane Dorian. I was worried for a couple days there that uh, my flights were going to be canceled because I was supposed to be flying on the same day that it, the eye of the storm was supposed to be over Orlando. So, uh, But the, it, it, thankfully, the hurricane didn't really impact uh, Orlando and Florida in, a, in the way it did uh, elsewhere. Um, but, um, I was, so, it, you know, it's, it's, it wasn't like I was expecting to, to arrive there and see like, you know, the aftermath of a storm, but it really, there was, you could see some aftermath of, uh, preparations that for the storm that, you know, never really came to impact them in any major way. Um, I flew out there, uh, Universal Studios, Florida flew me out there or, uh, to experience Halloween Horror Nights. I have been going to Halloween Horror Nights in Universal Studios Hollywood, I think, for the last decade plus, and I love it. And this is my first time going to Florida and experiencing it there. Florida is the place it kind of started. It's the 29th year of this thing where they have, like they construct these like haunted mazes, or I guess they call them haunted houses out there. We call them mazes in, in, in California. And... um they i've always heard that it's bigger and better and uh that they have all these unique original mazes that like we don't get in hollywood and you know everything that was said is true um just, just like everything else in florida they have more space they uh 
they have probably either more budget or uh, I've I've heard conflicting things. Maybe it's the fact that uh, I, I I've heard that when you construct anything on a studio lot, it has to be unionized. So the the labor that they're paying in Hollywood to construct these mazes, they're paying a lot more than what they're paying in Florida to construct these mazes. Um, so they're probably paying a lot more people a lot less to create a lot better things. Um, but it, it was a amazing experience. I videotaped it. Uh, the video is on Ordinary Adventures. We uploaded it the next morning. We spent all night editing. Um, and uh, it's gotten a lot of traffic. It's gotten, like, I think 50,000 views so far. Uh, but I would recommend checking that out because uh, it, it was just great. If you've never experienced an event like this, either in Hollywood or Orlando, I'd say watch this video and see what it's like. Uh, maybe uh, fast forward to... If you're just going to watch one section of it, fast forward to the Ghostbusters maze, which, Brad, I wish you could experience this. I wish you could go out to Florida and experience this because the Ghostbusters maze, it was just so good. So much fun. Uh, it, it like We were like, I don't know. It, it, watch the video. I'll put a link to that in the show notes, but I, I had a, a amazing time there. And while I was in Florida, I did get to visit Hollywood Studios and experience Toy Story Land for the first time, which Jacob... Got to experience a couple months back, is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah, back in June or July at this point. Yeah, uh, you know, I've watched a lot of videos of Toy Story Land, and to me, it looked kind of like really uh, low budget and sad, and the roller coaster didn't seem all that exciting. Um, I will say, being there in person, it's a lot more charming of an experience. To actually be in that land and uh, see all these like oversized things reminds me a lot of like Bugs Land. And uh, uh, when I was a kid, I used to go to like, like there was like a Honey I Shrunk the Kids area, I think, of Hollywood Studios. I guess back then MGM Studios and the uh, the roller coaster. What is the roller coaster called, Jacob? Um, uh, Slink, Slinky Dog Dash. Yeah, it's a little bit more intense than you can tell from the videos. Like, I was in the first car, so I'm not sure if that does anything to it. But, like, uh, it, that acceleration is a little fast. And the ups and downs kind of uh, – it, it actually made Kitra sick. So so it's not like your kitty coaster. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it has a, has a definite kick to it. And um, it's launch coaster, you know, so you're being propelled quickly. You know, not as intensely as other roller coasters. It's, you know, it's for families, ultimately. But yeah, I think that and the Seven Dwarfs train over in Magic Kingdom both walk a fine line between being fun for families while also actually having a good thrill to them. Yeah. And I, I also got to experience um, the other side of Galaxy's Edge, the other side of the galaxy, uh, which is very much like uh, Disneyland's version of Galaxy's Edge. But there are... There are a lot more differences than I thought there would be, but they're mostly like more minor cosmetic things and uh, changes in how things feel and stuff like that. We recorded a video that will probably be up this week or next week, so you can check that out because it's it's pointless to to go in depth about that. But I did get to try the the alcoholic green and blue milk, which basically just tastes like the blue and green milk from Disneyland with with tequila or rum in them and uh and also adding the alcohol i guess makes it a little less frozen so it's a little bit more of like 
a kind of frozen but more watery mess of a, a drink but i i enjoy them better uh than than without the alcohol versions and um the the other thing i wanted to say is uh florida is humid i'm not sure if you guys know this but uh i was <laughs> i was dying i was like literally you know it was i i don't think i sweat more on the the first day that i was there in orlando than i have ever sweat probably in the history of my life combined it was it was like welcome to the east coast peter it gets humid here and it's horrible i used to live on the east coast i lived in in massachusetts and it wasn't that bad there i don't know maybe maybe my memory of it maybe i've just my body has become so accustomed to living on the west coast but like it was so bad that i was like i think at one point i i I asked katrina like how do people live here like how how is that possible it's like an alien environment that is not uh, set for living creatures. But, I mean, it might also be, like, the worst of the worst. And also, like, you know, the hurricane came off the coast, so maybe it sent more humidity. I don't know. I don't – I guess I'm making excuses for them, but – No, Peter, it truly is a horrible when – I, when I was down there earlier this summer for the Disney trip, I sweat more in my in those few days than I have maybe in 20 years of living in Texas. It was awful. <laughs> I was sweating so much that the sweat was going into my eyes and my eyes were burning. <laughs> and then I, I forgot uh, the uh, my su- suntan lotion or whatever uh, spray. Uh, so I bought some in the park, which cost like $16 because they know how to screw you over because they're like, you, you need this and you're not going to leave the park to go get it. So we're going to charge you $16 for it. And I put that on and... I don't know what it is about suntan lotion, but that made me sweat even more. So it was, like, worse because then the sweat was making the suntan lotion go into my eyes. <laughs> so, um, I don't know. We recorded a bunch of videos. I'm I'm hoping I don't look completely miserable during the videos. <laughs> but uh, I'll put a link to the Holy and Horror Nights one in the show notes. Jacob, I, I saw on Instagram that you got a new tattoo. I did indeed. It was my fourth anniversary weekend, so my wife and I planned a whole weekend full of activities, climaxing with both of us getting tattoos, her first and my second. And uh, it's much larger and more complicated than my first one, and uh, therefore significantly longer in her, but more. But it is done. It is healing. It will. It's still currently under the protective surgical wrap thing that my guy uses. Uh, so it looks really gross right now, but in a few days I can take it off, you know, clean it off, and it will be on its way to looking perfect. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I've reached a point where I realize, oh, I'm just going to be a guy who has tattoos now. Uh, it's going to be a thing I do for the rest of my life, maybe every four to six months, get another tattoo until I die. It, so we'll it, see how this goes. Is there any realization of why th- this started happening? Like, you you jumping into tattoos? Like, is it you've realized that you don't need to have a job that that's a public-facing job? Like, you're behind a computer, like, it's, it doesn't matter if you have tattoos. This is true. Uh, it doesn't matter if I do. And also, um, I, I mentioned, I've talked about this before, but getting in shape, you know, in my forearms, where I have both my tattoos right now, are both parts of the body, I look at them and go, oh, I am not ashamed of this part of my body. Um, whereas, you know, other parts of the body still require work. But, like, so for me, it's sort of like a celebration of, oh, this part of my body looks like something that I am pleased to have people stare at, you know, and... Someday, um, my, my upper arms are the next step. I'm working on those right now. And someday, my you know chest and shoulders will be in shape I need them to be. But for me, I feel like it is a body positivity thing. It's sort of a celebration of me no longer being ashamed of parts of my body as I get in shape. Yes. Um, and how was your wedding anniversary? 
Oh, it was great. Uh, my wife and I watched uh, horror movies. We uh, we drank. We ate bad food, and we just generally enjoyed each other's company for three days. You know, I'm derailing this podcast again, like I always do. But uh, one of the comments we got on YouTube um, was a comment that said something like, "It's good that you and your wife have some uh, have an interest in common." And since since I read this comment from this YouTube commenter, it and, and it was said in a way I'm probably not repeating it exactly. It was said in a way of like an honest like. As if you can tell that he does not have an interest in common with his wife. <laughs> and I, I felt so sad. I felt, like, so very sad. Like, is, is that a thing, Jacob? Because I feel like you and your wife love doing a lot of things together, right? Like, yeah, my, my wife and I are literally best friends. Not like a joking way or like a, you know, she's my lifetime companion, so she has to be away. But a literally, we like hanging out. We like watching the same shows. We like going to the movies. We enjoy the same things. And we, you know, occasionally like time apart from each other. But we literally are best friends. And when people talk about their spouses or partners in ways where it's like, oh, so-and-so hates that I do this or hates that I like this, I get sad because, you know, I really enjoy hanging out with my wife. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's something you do that she does not like. To, like, like uh, for me and Ketra, you know, she doesn't love magic as much as me. But she'll come to the Magic Castle every once in a while. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not like she hates it or anything like that. But I, I can't imagine being in a relationship where the other person doesn't have a similar interest, <laughs> like at least one interest in common. Well, let's find out for sure. Uh, ben, how much do you hate your wife? <laughs> She's the worst. No, I mean, it's like hearing you talk about your relationship with yours. is like, yeah, the exact same thing. So um, I don't know. When did Slash Film Daily become a relationship podcast, Peter? Oof, geez. <laughs> I told you I was going to derail Chris the We need Chris and his advice corner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, uh, Brad, what have you been up to? Uh, I went to Chicago over the weekend to check out uh, the double dose of How Did This Get Made live shows that were happening at the Chicago Theater. Uh, the podcast has been uh, on tour for a little while now, and they've been making some stops. And uh, initially, my uh, my friend Ben and I, we'd only bought tickets to go see the early show, but then they added a late show since that sold out. And then we found out the late show was doing Space Jam. And so my friend Ben decided to buy tickets to that show as well. So we kind of made a day of it, went, went to Chicago for the early part of the day and got brunch and hopped around some toy stores and then went to see the two shows. And they were so much fun. Uh, the first show was Adventures of Pinocchio, which is the live action um 1996 version with that star Jonathan Taylor Thomas uh, as the voice of Pinocchio before he became a, a real boy, and then and Martin Landau, and this is a movie that I had seen when I was a kid, and I'll talk a little bit more about it when we get later to the the watching part. But um, but it was so fun to have them uh, riff on this movie because it uh, it's kind of traumatizing and horrifying looking back on this movie, um, and then the Space Jam one was also really fun because none of them had seen the movie before they watched it for the podcast and since they're uh, a little bit older than the generation that grew up on the movie they had no qualms about just trashing it which was hilarious <laughs> um even for someone like me who grew up on space jam and you know likes it for what it is um i still recognize that it is a bad movie and just having them just blast it was was amazing um so yeah shout out to 
uh, Paul, Jason, and June. Uh, they like to listen to Slash Film Daily occasionally. And I would also like to formally apologize for the crowd from the first show for asking such terrible, shitty, stupid questions and trying to make really bad jokes. It was extremely frustrating for everybody involved. Um, but otherwise, the shows were, were hilarious. I, I, I love seeing them whenever they come into town. Q&As are bad as is. I can't imagine one where the people are actually trying to make jokes as well. Yeah, it's uh, normally they're they're surprisingly good when you hear them on the podcast. But you know, when you're in when you're live, you get to hear a lot of the bad shit that doesn't make it into the podcast. Yeah, and you mentioned you you went to a bunch of toy stores. Is there anything interesting in Chicago that our listeners might be interested in? Um, th- so there's there's two sh- uh, stores that my friend Ben and I we've gone to a, a few times. Um, they're these really um, small uh, privately owned shops. One's called Kapow Collectibles, and the other one is called Quake Collectibles. They're on the north side of Chicago. Um, they are, like, just stacked full of uh, old action figures, new new action figures, uh, loose figures you can buy, Lego sets, just t- tons and tons of cool stuff. Um, and the, the guys who own, own the shops, you know, really know their toys. It's cool to talk to them and, you know, figure out, uh, just, just talk to them about, you know, getting new stuff and what's what's popular and you know stuff that's coming up and that kind of thing uh so yeah if you're you're in the chicago area and you're looking for good collectible shops those two are awesome i've been to them a few times and uh, they're also pretty well reasonably priced too the question is did you buy anything uh i did nothing super special though uh there was a pretty good price on uh bandai's um sh uh figuarts batman figure from the dark knight which i had had my eye on for a while because i bought the joker not too long ago and uh, I also picked up a Star Wars Black Series figure of Zuckus, the Bounty Hunter, because it was the last one that I needed to complete the Empire Strikes Back roster of Bounty Hunters uh, in the Black Series line. Well, congrats. Hey, thanks. And HD, last week you wanted to talk about something, but you didn't? Yes, this is something I did last week, but I forgot to talk about because I hadn't updated my bullet journal, and so I had not was not able to reference it when I was writing up what I was doing for the water cooler. But now I remembered. Uh, last weekend, I went to the Color Factory, which is this sort of pop-up interactive art exhibition and is known as, quote-unquote, the most Instagrammable place uh, in New York. And it certainly is that. The Color Factory is basically a series of brightly colored uh, room installations that have something like that is like incredibly Instagrammable. You might be uh, familiar with the picture of people in this bright pastel blue ball pit. Um, and that's something that's like the big um, staple of the color factory. But I actually found myself having a good time at this uh, at the color factory because it's a lot more interactive than I expected it to be. So you go in and there's actually an orientation that felt very Dharma initiative. They show you a video thing and like, this is what you do and welcome to the color factory. And they all have like these jumpsuits that are brightly colored as well. So it felt a little bit cultish, but it was fun to see. And it was kind of nice, like nicely themed. And um, when you go into each room, you can spend as much time in it as you want. And they have various activities to do and various foods to try as well. Um, There's like little macaron that you can eat at some and another room serves like uh, gelato. And um, they also like have uh, cameras installed that let you 
uh, take pictures with those professional those cameras that they have there, um, and you don't have to pay extra. You already pay a fee to go in. Uh, so it was um, it was actually quite fun, and there is a there are more like families and children running around than just Instagram influencers. So it wasn't too much of that kind of awkward situation when you're with a bunch of people who are very good at taking photos and you're not. So it was it was quite fun, and I actually do need to upload those photos at some point. Um, on my Instagram, but uh, yeah, it, it's a good time and actually worth a couple hours if you um, are looking for something to do in Manhattan. Well, cool. Uh, while HT was joining a cult of colorful Instagrammers, <laughs> Jacob was reading. What was he reading? Uh, I'm reading a book published in 2015 called Scream, Chilling Adventures in the Science of Fear by Margie Kerr. She's a sociologist at the University of Pittsburgh and the question of the book is, why do human beings enjoy being frightened? And uh, her whole hypothesis is that everybody has studied fear, you know, for a very long time. The chemicals that cause fear and why our bodies react the way they do. So uh, why do we seek out those feelings? Uh, the, the, why do we seek out the feelings evolved to uh, help us survive in, uh, in a way that gives us pleasure? And it's a really fascinating book because she travels around the world. She travels to Japan to ride the tallest, fastest roller coasters. She travels to old abandoned prisons to spend the night in, in like in the isolation cells where people went crazy. She goes to world scariest haunted houses. She climbs towers. Uh, she goes to uh, actual supposedly haunted buildings. And each chapter is about like a different type of fear and the science of how our bodies react to fear, which chemicals are generated, how they interact with our body. Uh, which parts of our bodies are evolved to fight against fear and uh, help us survive fear. And as somebody who loves roller coasters and loves haunted houses and loves horror movies, the whole thing is a genuinely fascinating read. And uh, I'm getting a lot out of it as somebody who uh, never really thought twice about why I got a thrill out of being scared. So if you like want to understand horror movies or understand haunted houses or understand you know, the allure of the adrenaline rush and the actual science of that adrenaline rush, uh, Scream, Schling Adventures in the Science of Fear, is a very compelling and very quick read, a little over 200 pages. I'm about halfway through it right now. Very cool. And uh, I'm assuming everybody can get that on Amazon, right? Yeah, that's where I got it. Okay. It's, not, it's uh, under, under 10 bucks. It's really worth your time. Okay, let's move on to what we've been watching this week. Uh, it Chapter 2 came to theaters, and I think Ben and Jacob saw it out of the group. Ben, what did you think? Um, this one, it's a tough one for me. I liked it a lot while still recognizing that it has a bunch of flaws. I love the book so much. And this movie, um, you know, it, it's adapting essentially the other half of the original novel uh, by Stephen King. The first movie obviously dealt with the kids storyline. And this one is, is more of like the adults, but there's also some flashbacks to the kids in this one as well. And I thought those flashbacks were really artfully, beautifully done. Um, I, I don't know. I, I loved the performances from everyone in this movie. I thought everybody was like pretty perfectly cast. And I mean, as Chris and many, many other people said in the original, uh, you know, early round of buzz, Bill Hader and, and you too, Peter, uh, Bill Hader like steals this movie. He's, he's tremendous. And I love seeing him have the opportunity to really sink his teeth into a character in this way. Um, and, and give us something that we don't often see from him. Um, at the same time, I, I realize that it's very long. It's like what, two hours and 48 minutes or something crazy like that. And, and I know that, 
you know, it, it adds some things and there are some things from the book that it doesn't adapt perfectly. Like one of my biggest complaints, I think, is like the the way that the uh, town of Derry doesn't really feel like it has that sickness or that that illness to it, um, that infection uh, that it that you really got that sense in the first movie and you don't get that sense at all in this film. It's almost like uh, Andy Muschietti, the director, and and I think Gary Doberman, the screenwriter, maybe maybe just like decided to like drop that as a plot point um, when it's so integral to the way that the novel works and the way that the first movie works. But um, I don't know. I, I'm ultimately torn on it. But Jacob, what did you think? I think you're mostly on the money here, Ben. Uh, Andy Muschietti clearly wants to make a fun movie here, and I think both films are incredibly fun. They're crowd pleasers. They're funny. They're they're scary. They're exciting. They're big, epic horror movies, and I was thinking about this, and when was the last time we, we had a massive, big, epic, you know, studio horror movie? I'm thinking of, like, The Shining or The Birds or original Robert Wise's The Haunting. Th- these are uncommon, so I want to celebrate it in Chapter, chapter 2 for being horror blockbusters, R-rated horror blockbusters that are really swinging for it, going for the fences in ways that I want to see more of. I want to see horror, you know, given this kind of platform. I think it's very exciting, but... This movie doesn't always work, and part of it is an adaptation thing. Uh, I do think that Muschietti and Dopperman do sidestep a lot of the book's nastier elements. I mean, the book is less about a killer clown and more about how adults are willing to let children be hurt or ignore children being harmed if it serves their self-interests. And that's ultimately what that book is entirely about, about how about kids learning, oh, the world's not a safe place. And that is really absent from these movies in a way that makes me think that they deliberately chose to leave out the really important thematic undercurrent of that thousand page novel. Mm-hmm. But it is an incredibly entertaining movie. Uh, sometimes too entertaining in a weird way, because there's like, I think of a music cue, a song cue that exists to create a laugh in the middle of a scare and kind of just ruins the scare in a way that I found really kind of annoying. Yeah. And, and that's the only time that moment that you're talking about is the only time that that happens in the movie. And I almost thought that it was like, the editors, you know, put it in there as a prank just for Muschietti, like during the dailies, during playback or whatever. And then it somehow made its way into the final movie because it's so separate from the tone of everything else that's going on there. Yeah, I feel like there's so many times this movie where, um, where as funny as Bill Hader and uh, is it, oh goodness, uh, James Ransom playing Eddie? Yeah, yeah. Uh, they are fantastic actors and they're really funny. Uh, but I feel like the movie leans on them too heavily for humor to the point where so many scares are undercut by them being funny. And I feel like there should have been some judicious editing decisions to uh, make sure that they are they were used better uh, because they're giving great stuff. But I think a little would have been a lot more. But this, this movie's still I still had a great time. I still had a really good time. But I keep on falling back on things that bother me, like I guess minor spoiler alert. But Henry Bowers returns in this movie as he does in the novel. And you could remove him from this movie and nothing changes. He, he is, he's in maybe a handful of scenes and he's, he's a joke. The character is treated as a joke when he's a sense of like horror in both the original miniseries and the novel. And it feels like a mistake. It, 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 they should cut that. They should cut, that subplot should have never been filmed, let alone left in the final cut. It yeah. is bad. Now yeah, that you, I agree. I was going to say, now that you both have seen both chapters, do you think the idea to split it at the, the two different time periods was the, the right thing to do? I think, only, only way, I think it's the only way it would have gotten made, but I also think I think that the six-hour cut that you know splices all together and allows for a flashback structure uh, may be the version of the movie I'd like the best, because there are times watching it chapter two where I'm thinking, this is less of a complete movie and more of half of the six-hour version that I'm going to enjoy in a couple of years. Yeah, yeah, I feel the same way. Yeah. 
me as well. Uh, ben, you also watched some stuff this week? Yeah, I watched The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, a 1948 film uh, written and directed by John Huston. It stars Humphrey Bogart, uh, Walter Huston, who's John Huston's father, and Tim Holt. And I'd never seen this movie before, and it's like on the AFI list of the 100 greatest movies of all time. And, um, you know, it, it's it's one of these acclaimed films that I'm just like, I'd never had a chance to finally check out before. So I, I sat down and, and watched this thing and it's very, very good. It's uh, the, the premise is Bogart plays sort of like a, a washed up um, broke drunk kind of guy who's like hanging out in Mexico and looking for work. And he overhears this, uh, this sort of old timer who's played by Walter Houston talking about prospecting for gold out in the mountains and Bogart and this other guy played by Tim Holt uh, team up with this old guy and go out into the wilderness and try to uh, prospect for gold and, and strike it rich. And they do. And that's, there's not really a spoiler there, but it, it's all the, the main thrust of the movie is about what happens to them afterwards. And like the, um, the degradation of their souls that that uh, that occurs after this gold sort of like gets into their veins almost where uh, it, it transforms them as people and and the greed and the the lust for um, money and all of that stuff sort of uh, uh, starts infecting them as human beings and um, it's a really really good movie and and uh, like watching it now so many things clicked in in place in my head of like things that I've seen after this that are clearly referencing this movie. Like most recently I'm thinking of, um, triple frontier, the Netflix action movie from earlier this year with Ben Affleck and Oscar Isaac and a bunch of people. Um, that movie is basically just like a modern day remake of this film, but, uh, with a little bit more of like a, a macho sort of military angle to it. Um, but, Man, I mean, yeah, I would just recommend everybody watching this movie. Bogart is particularly great in it. And Walter Houston, who won an Oscar for uh, Best Supporting Actor, is like one of the most fast-talking characters that, that I can remember in cinema history. He's like, he is just spewing dialogue so quickly, like to the point where it almost feels like you're listening to him on two times speed and everybody else is just talking at normal speed. But uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Very cool. Uh, you know, I wasn't going to talk about anything what we've been watching because I've been doing traveling and not, I haven't watched any movies or TV shows. But there was something I wanted to give a shout out to. It's a new YouTube or a YouTube channel that is new to me called The Endless Adventure, and uh, this is about a couple uh, named Eric and Allison. Uh, they travel. They basically have given up their permanent home. And a normal life and basically travel the world. So uh, they they basically they will post three videos a week and it's them traveling every place internationally, uh, domestically. Uh, they, they go on cruises. They go to castles. They uh, but the great thing is that they are also photographers and or videographers and they, you know, do their stuff looks so good. Like they have so, so, so many like beautiful drone shots and just like, I don't know, watching their vlogging like makes me feel so uh not good as a vlogger because they make everything look so cinematic and so effortless and so uh just amazing and uh it also makes me like I Kitra and I have been like watching this and we have a list of things that they are doing in different places that we're like oh we got to if we ever go to Japan we got to go to that place and stuff like that so it's you know it's a, a travel vlog i don't know how I, I think they have like 250,000 subscribers which uh 
I don't think is enough to 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 support you traveling, you know, internationally for a living. But so I'm wondering, like, how they pull that off. But uh, I'm sure it's somewhere in here. There's probably a a video with them answering that question. But uh, I'll link to it in the show notes. I I would highly recommend it. And it, f- it feels like um, uh, you know, when Ben and uh, Amy uh, both uh, quit their 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 everyday jobs, this is gonna be them. I feel. Like. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, Peter. The answer to this is probably their other YouTube channel, uh, the Endless Crime Spree, where they video themselves <laughs> robbing every place they go. <laughs> I want to see that channel. <laughs> um, okay, uh, Jake, what have you been watching? I watched a terrible movie on Hulu streaming there called Bigfoot County. It wants to be Blair Witch with Bigfoot. It is very bad. I do not recommend you wasting your time on it. And I like bad found footage movies. Big hard pass skip. Uh, but also streaming on Hulu. Uh, Pumpkinhead, a very strange uh, movie. I think it's 1988. Uh, noteworthy for a few reasons. It is the only film directed by Stan Winston, the creature effects extraordinaire who made the Drawing Towards Jurassic Park, designed the Terminator for James Cameron. Uh, I believe he helped build the Predator. He is he died. He passed away um, in the 2000s, I believe. But he is a legendary special effects designer. You, if you have seen movies, you have seen Sam Winston's work. Uh, Pumpkinhead is is him trying to make a movie, and it has a reputation for being terrible, but it's, it's gained a cult following. And revisiting now, it, it holds up pretty well. It's an 80s splatter movie. Uh, Lance Henriksen from uh, Aliens and, uh, and among other many movies, he played Bishop in Aliens. Uh, in a rare leading man role as a as a man, a redneck type who runs a uh, a little shop in the middle of like the um, r- rural countryside of America. His young son is killed by some city uh, some city folk uh, who run him over with a motorcycle by accident. So Lance Henriksen goes to the neighborhood witch in the middle of the woods and summons Pumpkinhead, a uh, vengeance demon, to hunt down and kill the teenagers. And Lance Henriksen has a, has a uh, crisis of conscience and goes out to save them instead uh, and stop Pumpkinhead. And Pumpkinhead himself is this very large practical monster. He's very cool, uh, very gooey. If you like practical monsters, he's worth seeking out. The movie itself is only okay. It has really good moments. It doesn't really hold together entirely. Uh, its budget is showing at the seams in pretty much every single major scene. But Pumpkinhead is a really nifty little artifact and a forgotten 80s monster movie that I would recommend checking out if any of this sounds appealing. Very cool. And uh, Brad, you mentioned earlier The Adventures of Pinocchio. Did you revisit this in in anticipation for the how did this get made? Uh, Yes, I did. Uh, Because my friend Ben had not seen the movie. Um, He was a little too old around the time the movie came out to take interest in it. Um, I had seen it when I was a kid, but I hadn't seen it in a long, long time. Uh, So I didn't remember just how weird and unintentionally uh, erotic and sometimes inappropriate this movie is um it's just it's very very strange and like uh there are dated effects in it too because like they have a computer animated cricket whose name is uh pepe in this one because jiminy cricket's a disney character and so they had to give this cricket a different name and uh it's just real bad like basically the same kind of animation that they brought that creature in the lost in space uh movie to life like it has not aged well at all and um while the puppet effects for the time for pinocchio done by the jim henson company were i'm sure pretty good they're just kind of weird now and it's just a lot of the stuff that happens in pinocchio when it's brought to live action form it's it's extremely uh odd 
and very unnerving. Uh, Rob Schneider's in this movie, which I completely forgot, uh, which is, is very, very weird. And, like, he doesn't even try to put on, like, an Italian accent or a British accent. He's just Rob Schneider. <laughs> like, he might as well come in, come into a scene and go, go, Geppetto, making puppets. It's just... <laughs> It is, oh my gosh, if, if you haven't seen this movie, like, I recommend seeking it out just because it is something to experience. It is so weird. Uh, the, best, the best thing about it is, um, at How Did This Get Made, is that they had, um, during the show, Paul has his computer so that he can reference clips and things like that while they're talking about the movie. And the background picture on his computer that he had during the Adventures of Pinocchio show was this image of the puppet with his mouth wide open and whipped cream all over his face because there's a whole sequence in the movie where he like um, innocently steals like baked goods from this, uh, from a bakery and he keeps eating them. So he gets all this whipped cream over his face, but, and there, because of it, there's just so many like just double entendres that come out of it. And every time the image popped up uh, when he would switch between clips and stuff like that, the audience was laughing because the, the picture was just so, so hilarious um but yeah this this movie is just if you like i said watch it it's weird and (laughs) yeah where can you find this fred it looks like the adventures of pinocchio you can watch it uh on voodoo it's one of their like free movies that you can watch with ads on there otherwise you can just uh rent it for like three bucks from amazon or youtube or google play or whatever Okay, let's move on to HT. Uh, I see that you watched the first two episodes of The Leftovers. Was was it the Avengers uh, snap, or was it uh, the upcoming Watchmen series that made you want to finally dive into this HBO series? Well, maybe it was a combo of both, but, you know, I've been wanting to dive into The Leftovers for a long time because I am one of the ardent defenders of Lost in its final season. And um, I remember when The Leftovers was... Uh, getting all this critical acclaim, people were praising it as sort of Damon Lindelof's, um, like his 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 lessons learned from Lost that he made into an even better show, and people compared it favorably to Lost. And you know, I would have a reaction saying Lost is great, first of all, but it did pique my interest in The Leftovers, but I never got around to it. And yes, um, when Avengers Endgame came out, and I absolutely loved that first half of the movie. And um, how it kind of became almost a meditation on grief and the idea of being very similar to the premise of Leftovers, which is that about 2% of the population suddenly disappears. And uh, the show uh, tackles the um, the aftermath of that three years later. Um, so my friend who actually had seen The Leftovers was like, you love the first half of Endgame. You should just watch The Leftovers. And so I finally got around to it. And um, it's very good, guys. I really love how much it takes its time and um i was other than the um the first scene in which you see the actual disappearance i think uh i don't remember what they call it in the show uh the departure or something uh there isn't much of the sci-fi element to it which i was a little surprised at but i do like the the character drama and the kind of slow burn and the intricacies of those character dynamics that are being shown in those first two episodes um i was also surprised to see that uh carrie coon doesn't show up until like the end of the first episode or maybe even the second episode because I had heard so much about her performance and how she was kind of like that second uh, co-lead with Justin Thoreau, who is also excellent in this. But um, I'm really liking it so far. And I like that the the intrigue and the mystery isn't about 
any sort of flashy element or sci-fi element, but it's just about wanting to know more about these people and what they're going through and the grief and how they came to be this way. So I, I'm really looking forward to watching the, the rest of it. I'm adding it to my many lists of shows that I'm just <laughs> making my way through. Yeah, I'm curious to hear. Succession I'll get to you at some point. <laughs> I'm curious to hear what you think of the, the rest of the se- series. Uh, you watch some new new movies as well? Yes. So I talked about seeing Hustlers last week, but I finally will be able to talk more about my opinion about it because it made its world premiere at TIFF this weekend. And I liked it, although, and I loved a lot of aspects of it, including Jennifer Lopez, who is just fantastic in this film. Honestly, one of her best career performances, I would say, just kind of glamour, glamour incarnate. And she kind of takes this movie by the balls and takes controls of it because she's just so fascinating and so fun to watch in this movie but um i have to say i don't i didn't love it as much as everyone else at tiff did and i wonder if i was missing something because everyone is raving about it and i liked it a lot and i really like especially when it becomes more of an acerbic sharp black comedy in its second half but i think it just takes a long time to get to Uh, The Scam Itself, which is based on a true life story that was written about in a New York Magazine article. And um, that first half uh, of the film is more kind of like this gritty kitchen sink realism, which I enjoyed. But then once you get to The Scam, the film kind of switches gears and becomes more of this zippy black comedy, which I also enjoyed. But I felt like at some point the dissonance between those two took me out of the movie a little bit. But uh, the cast is great. Jennifer Lopez, again, just so fantastic. Con- uh, Constance Wu uh, is really good, too. Um, and she's actually the protagonist. So I feel kind of bad because she does get a little bit overshadowed by Jennifer Lopez. But they play, they have such a great character uh, dynamic and relationship. I really like the dive into female relationships in this film and how complex and how kind of uh thorny it can be, uh, as well as um, the lack of the male gaze in this film. It is a movie about uh, strippers you know, running a scam against Wall Street clients, uh, but it never gets too leering or too um, sort of exploitative, uh, which I do feel at some point kind of uh, becomes a detriment to the movie because it do- doesn't like to get nasty at all. It does feel like very glossy and kind of crowd pleasing, but in a way that I really enjoyed. So I will say it's a, it's a, it's a good film and I, um, I wish I liked it as much as everyone else, but Jennifer Lopez is definitely a reason to watch Hustlers. Okay. Uh, and you also saw Climax? Yes. Climax just uh, got released on Hulu and I got a chance to watch it. This is the Gaspar Noe uh, dance drug film I guess you would say and um, I really liked it especially how it just goes completely off the rails in the last 45 minutes I really love movies that kind of take its time building that dread and that anticipation in the first half and then go completely off the rails in that second half and Climax does a great job of doing that it's actually even slower in its first half because it become is not about that atmosphere as much as it is about the character relationships that are established slowly and kind of the um, the uh, all the different dynamics that are taking place within the stance troupe that are in this uh, sort of isolated empty school where they are rehearsing a new dance sequence and so the the first half does take its time but then once it really kicks into gear it kicks into gear it really does because uh, after 
at some points during the party in which they're celebrating their uh, successful rehearsal, the dancers all drink the sangria, which is, um, unbeknownst to them, laced with S uh, LSD. And the last 45 minutes of this film just becomes a relentless, intense, agonizing drug trip that gets really violent and unnerving, but so it's something that you can't look away from. And um, it is excellent. Sophie Patella is the only um, name actress in this. I think a lot of the other actors and actresses in this film are um, just dancers first, first and foremost, but they do a great job at uh, the more dramatic moments of this movie as well. And you also did a anime double feature? Yes. Okay. So um, please forgive me if I go a little long at this because I these are two movies that are very close to my heart. But uh, I learned recently that the Metrograph was doing a special screening of Spirited Away uh, at their theater and that they were also doing a sort of Satoshi Khan celebration. Um, and I was really excited to do a double feature of Spirited Away and Millennium Actress, a.k.a. two anime masterpieces that make me cry. These are two movies that I deeply adore. Um, I, I, I love Spirited Away so much to the point that I get like a physical <laughs> reaction to it. Uh, you might notice I'm like, yeah, uh, I'm okay. Um, but I was trembling for a lot of watching the movie in theaters because I was just so excited to see it again. Uh, it was actually my first time seeing it in theaters because I had first seen it when I got a DVD double pack with Spirited Away and Castle in the Sky that my mom bought me when I was 12. And that was kind of a nice well, kind of turning point for me. I guess you could call it my like movie buff origin story because when I saw those movies, I just fell in love with them completely and decided to start collecting Studio Ghibli movies from then on. And I have the whole um, pantheon of movies that are still like at my parents' house. I haven't taken them up yet. But um, Spirit Away was a movie that really left an impact on me. And um, I watched it so much that... I scratched my DVD copy and actually have not seen it in about five years. So I was just really excited to see this movie again and see it in theaters. Um, and I, I had actually forgotten that I bought tickets for a subtitled version. So this is the Japanese language version with English subtitles. And um, I've seen both versions of, a both versions of the movie uh, dozens of times. Uh, but I don't think the parents in my theater were aware that this was subtitles because there was a lot of oh, kids no. there who I'm pretty sure do not know how to read. <laughs> so at the beginning, you know, people were, were pretty restless. But, you know, the the, the the brilliant imagery of Spirited Away and just like the gorgeous animation, I think, was actually able to calm down a lot of the kids who stayed for the entirety of it and were, and were pretty quiet uh, apart from a few um, sequences that were a little bit you know, disturbing parts, but... Wait, wait, did um, any families walk out? No families walked out. Fam there was a, one kid that kept going to the bathroom, but other than that, everyone stayed, and I was quite surprised by that. So, pleasantly so, because if parents are showing their kids steered away, you know, that's a great sign of the future. Yeah. Um, by the way, but, this uh, is my favorite Miyazaki film. Uh, I haven't seen yeah. them all like you, so... But uh, yeah. I, I just love it's Spirited Away. I love it so much. It's my favorite Miyazaki film, um, but not only that, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, one thing, I, one thing I love about watching *Spirited Away* again, um, and it's as great as I remember, is that I can always sort of glean something new from it. Um, since it's been so long since I'd watched it, I was uh, able to 
kind of get I always get something new and this time I was I uh, was struck by the sort of Greek mythology um, elements that are scattered throughout this film I especially like the idea of you know like the underworld and Persephone and Orpheus as well being some being recognizable elements in this movie so I just wanted to give a shout out to that um, but uh, also in watching the English subtitled version again uh, I will say that the English dub is not bad. The Disney dubs of the Ghibli movies are actually quite good. Um, and there's a lo- there are a few differences between the English dub and English subtitled version. Uh, the key one being, uh, excuse me, um, that uh, in the end of Spirited Away, I'm going to give slight spoilers, as um, Chihiro and her parents are driving away, in the English dub version, she uh, her parents say, new school, new life, new friends. That does sound really scary. And she says, I think I can handle it. But in the Japanese version, they drive away and say nothing. And I actually really like and prefer that version of the ending because it lends ambiguity to the movie that um, kind of makes you question whether she remembers the um, incidences that ha- like took place in the spirit world, whether she actually is able to recall all the things that happened. And um, it's kind of hinted at when you see them leaving and it's a repeat of the same scene at the beginning and you kind of get the inkling that maybe she reverted back to her old self. But then when she looks back and you see the, the flash of her he- new head... A hair tie it kind of is like there's a little piece of little kernel that that maybe stayed with her and I like that reading a lot it's something that always really struck me and so yeah Spirit Away is a movie that's really special to me uh, it introduced a whole spectrum of emotions that I was not cap- aware that I was capable of feeling when I was 12 years old uh, I do have to give a shout out to the train sequence which is just as beautiful today as it was back when I first saw it and really left an impression on me as a kid It's a sequence that is so quiet and yet so filled with meaning and um, this deep melancholy that, again, I was just like, what is this feeling that I'm feeling when I was 12? And and I was not really able to articulate it as a kid. And even now, I don't know if I'm able to fully articulate why I love it so much. But it's just like the facelessness of everything and the, the faceless spirits literally that are passing by and the kind of ephemeral nature of all of it that really touches me still and um, make lose me <laughs> even now um so i just want to talk about how i love spirited away so much and uh how it led into the next film that i watched um millennium actress which is not directed as, it's not a studio ghibli film it's directed by satoshi khan who i guess you could say is almost the polar opposite stylistically uh to miyazaki uh where miyazaki his films approach the world from a more fantastical perspective and from the perspective of wanting to make life more interesting and life more beautiful, uh, there is, I'm sorry for going so long, there is a great uh, NHK documentary series about 10 years with Hayao Miyazaki in which, uh, and there's a moment in which he says, he's looking at these rooftops and he's saying, I'm imagining, you know, a man leaping off of this rooftop and like flying up this rooftop and then soaring down from, to this other rooftop. And it's not something that you can see in real life, but in my mind, it's something that happens. Mm-hmm. And that's what a Miyazaki film is. Um, but Satoshi Khan, in contrast, is all hard lines, very earthy and re- very realistic, uh, despite Millennium Actress being uh, a very dreamy and surreal film. Um, Satoshi Khan, you might recognize 
from films like Paprika or Perfect Blue. But Millennium Actress is actually my favorite of his films. Um, it's a, definitely an underrated classic of, of his because uh, I think it's because it's not as visually striking as his other films. It's a lot more muted in its color scheme, a lot of reds and browns, um, and a lot of like sepia tones to match the nostalgic color of, of the um, time in which it takes place. Uh, it follows a legendary uh, actress who is retired and these two documentary filmmakers who are trying to do a story about her life and doing an interview with her. But, and but, as by the she way, tells- c- can you imagine an American film, American animated film being about documentary filmmakers or featuring documentary? You cannot. No. You cannot. No, I, I probably not. Um, but yeah, it's, I think that this is a film that it can only be done in animation too, because the way that it approaches this actress's life story is that as she tells her story, the documentary filmmakers find themselves living it with her and actually actively participating in her past and uh, affecting it. And um, as she tells her story, uh, which is as a child, she, as a young girl, she met this man who was a political fugitive and she decides to rescue him. But, uh, and then, and when she falls in love with him, he the next day disappears and with the promise to see her again. And so she decides to become an actress to, um, find a way to meet him and through the rest of her life she's always trying to search for him and she finds and through her career as an actress she starts to play like these ingenues who are always searching for something always yearning for something and as she tells her life story the her actual life starts to blend with the films that she made and the characters that she played who are all you know running and searching and yearning for that one thing and um, it goes from you know her life uh, living in World War Two, post World War Two Japan, to suddenly she is in a samurai film. Suddenly she is in an astronaut drama, and the editing is so seamless and so just and so smooth that even the audience is taken for a ride to see uh, to question what reality is happening and whether where where that that fiction ends and where the uh, her life begins. So. And it's um, a really beautifully made film. And I want to talk about, give a shout out. I'm going to stop talking so much soon um, to <laughs> Satoshi Khan's editing style and how brilliant it is. Because even though his his characters, his, his animation style is much more realistic, um, his characters, especially the their faces are really expressive compared to Miyazaki films. Uh, his, I think, his power and his, um, his greatest achievement is in his editing style, which... Uh, really makes use of those fast cuts, but um, makes use of the medium animation as well because he is able to show a a shot that is like a fraction of a second long and he inserts it between two other shots that take that are take place just as rapidly. And it's something that you can't really do in a live action film because of the lack of, of budget, the lack of resources, lack of time. And yet he squeezes all those things in. Um, and it's these shots barely register. They're almost subliminal, subliminal in a lot of senses, but they work so effectively in creating that dreamlike, that really uh, um, off-kilter uh, sort of um, ambience to the film. Uh, and yeah, Millennium Actress is really fantastic. I highly recommend uh, watching it. Oh, I was also struck. By how um, much the structure is similar to Citizen Kane. I hadn't recognized this back when I first watched it. But 
I don't think it's hyperbolic to say that this is the Citizen Kane of anime films. You know what? In fact, I'm going to say it. Um, but yeah, this is a film I saw when I was young and it really bowled me over because I didn't realize, it made me realize rather that movies could be like this, that movies could do something so weird and unique and um, testing of the boundaries of, of filmmaking. So I, uh, I highly recommend seeing it, especially if you like his other film, Perfect Blue, which similarly um, explores issues of identity and personas through the lens of a film camera, but in a way that's much more optimistic because Perfect Blue is a psychological thriller that I will never watch again because it just <laughs> made me feel so horrible. Um, and yeah, Millennium Actress, highly recommend. Well, thank you, HC, for that emotional recap of those two anime films. I'm sure that probably put those films on the radar of people that probably have not watched them yet. So that's that's a good thing. Uh, let's move on to what we've been eating. I, When I was in Orlando, I did eat some bad stuff. I uh, went to the Toothsome Chocolate Emporium and Savory Feast Kitchen in uh, – Universal City Walk. This is basically Universal City Walk's version of Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. It's a restaurant, but they have these decadent uh, desserts and milkshakes. Uh, I uh, we did a video on this as well, which will be up, uh, you know, next week or something like that. Um, but I was we weren't really bowled over by all the the food that was there, but the, the milkshakes are great. And these are like those like Instagrammable milkshakes where like it has like a gigantic piece of cake like coming out of the top of the milkshake and then like the you know the glass itself has like frosting with like um sprinkles and you know it, it's just like way more than you can possibly handle and i'll say the milkshake itself uh that we had which i think was like frosted cake milkshake or something something like that uh was fantastic but the i would not eat there uh for the food i would just go there and get a milkshake and is the, it like a 20 dollar milkshake peter you know, I wish I knew what the price was. Uh, it was definitely over ten dollars. I don't know. I don't think it was twenty dollars. There, there is a place like this, and in New York City, and in Disney uh, downtown Disney, uh, called Black Tap. Um, so you, you should check that out uh, when you're in the city next. Black uh, Tap. Yeah, uh, they actually have good food, but they have like these huge Instagrammable. <laughs> I like how you say they actually have good food. Yeah, they actually have good food. They're not a theme park restaurant. Okay. Uh, but the, and their milkshakes are like even more like at least like at this toothsome place, uh the piece of cake that was coming out of the milkshake, I think it was like a smaller piece of cake. Like at Black Tap, like when you have like a piece of cake coming out of your milkshake, it's like a like a full size piece of cake coming out of the milkshake. It's uh insane. Uh so I like Black Tap over Toothsome. Um, but the other thing I tried at Universal City Walk is we went back to Intojitos, which um, is a Mexican place. We recently tried uh, – they just recently opened it in City Walk in Hollywood, and we went there and did a video on that. I talked about it last week on the water cooler. Um, Intojitos is, I think, our Kitra and I's favorite place in Universal City Walk Orlando to eat. It's a Mexican food place, but it's kind of like a, a New Mex or like um, – I guess like an American, like what do, what do you call that? It's like when it's like a mashup of cuisines. Uh, it's kind of like Americanized Mexican food. <laughs> they have like a um, like Tex-Mex. Yeah, I guess it's like Tex-Mex, but it's a little bit. Yeah, I don't know. Um, they, on stage, they have a mariachi band playing like uh, an uh, American, like you know, top twenty songs from the last like two years, but like in mariachi style. 
Um, so it's a, it totally like I'm not sure if uh, it's wrong or not, but it, it's fun. Um, and uh, they have amazing uh, margaritas. So if you like margaritas, uh, head there and get some of the margaritas. Um, and uh, we did not tape this for the channel, so you will not see this. Uh, the, the last thing I wanted to mention uh, is whenever I'm in Orlando, I end up Ubering to Uno's Pizzeria. Uno's is a chain from the East Coast that I grew up with in Massachusetts. Uh, it actually started in Chicago because they created the deep dish pizza if you ask them or if you look on wikipedia it's either them or another place there's not quite accurate records but it, they might have created the deep dish pizza i don't go there for the deep dish pizza the thing i grew up on are these things called pizza skins which is basically a pizza crust in a small deep dish pan which they put mashed potatoes they melt cheese on top of it and they put bacon so it's basically potato skins but in deep dish pizza form. And I used to have them all the time when I lived in Massachusetts. And uh, whenever I'm in Orlando, there's one close by to the parks that we usually Uber or Postmates from. And I, I got to have my my pizza skins. Uh, it, it is a chain restaurant. It's nothing to like, you know, probably for anybody other than me to go out of their way for. Uh, but I, I really like the pizza skin. So uh, putting that on your radar, if you have a Uno's near you, I think it's uh, a chain on the East Coast. It's not here on the West Coast. Um, check out. There's the there's one in, uh, there's a, I think there's a few in Chicago, actually. Yeah. yeah. Like I said, they're, they were possibly the people that created the deep dish pizza. I'm not, I'm not. I might actually have to go to an Uno sometime just to try the this pizza skin thing you're talking about because it sounds pretty fucking good. It, it is it is really good, although I will say when I had, a, had it when I was a teenager in Massachusetts, it used to be like a much bigger size, and I think now that they have to release um, the calorie counts and stuff like that, it has shrunk quite a bit, so it's like a really mini-sized uh, deep dish pizza. <laughs> um, but it's still good. I would, I would, yeah, Brad, d definitely check it out and uh, report back in a later edition of the water cooler and what we've yeah. been eating. And sometimes you have to come to Chicago to actually try real deep, deep dish, dish pizza. Yeah. yeah. Although I will say in LA, the best deep dish pizza is Hollywood pies, which you once had when you were here and you said it was just okay. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was fine, but it, it wasn't, it wasn't as good as good actual Chicago deep dish pizza. I love it. You're not going to take it, take this away from me, Brad. Uh, <laughs> what have you been eating this week? Uh, so I got my hands on a new M&M uh, for Halloween. Uh, there are creepy Cocoa Crisp M&Ms, which uh, are basically, it's kind of, I guess you would say, like a, like a Cocoa Pebbles uh, flavored kind of M&M. And that's really, it's just the, it's just a crispy M&M that kind of has like a dusting of cocoa chocolate inside of it instead of just the regular milk chocolate. So the difference is uh, subtle. It's still pretty good. It, it tastes, like I said, kind of like uh, if they crushed up chocolate pebbles and put them inside M and uh, a crispy M and M. So they're they're pretty good, but they're they're not as good as my my favorite crispy M and M, and and really my favorite M and M overall is the crispy mint M and M that comes out around uh, Christmas time. But uh, yeah, you can get those. Um, I I think it's a Target exclusive, um, but they're out for for Halloween right now. So if you want to try those, they're they're out there. And then uh, KFC recently um, announced a new Famous Bowl. Um, the Famous Bowl on their menu is that thing that combines like the mashed potatoes with the corn and the chicken with some uh, cheese and gravy in it. 
and they recently came out with a new one that is a mac and cheese famous bowl. Um, it doesn't have uh, all the other stuff in it. It's basically just mac and cheese with a chicken in it. But I like KFC's uh, mac and cheese, and I, I guess it's just nice to be able to order it and like have the the chicken that's in it proportional to the serving as opposed to just trying to shove chicken into it myself, especially because they don't ever really sell a larger portion of the mac and cheese. It's usually like a side order. So you'd have to like get uh, like a large, probably catered size version, I guess. Uh, so, so yeah, it's, 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 you know, it's just chicken inside the, the mac, mac and cheese at KFC, uh, which I enjoy. So if you like both those things, then you'll probably like that. Cool. And uh, let's move on to what we've been playing. <laughs> Brad, what have you been playing this week? So I haven't really been playing uh, with this necessarily, but I did receive it, and I thought it's it's pretty cool, and I thought it weren't worth talking about. Um, Hasbro sent me uh, the first figure in their new Hyper Real Black Series line for Star Wars figures, and this is basically a figure that comes somewhere in between a Hot Toys figure and the normal 6-inch Black Series figures. Uh, it's intended to have uh, be, be a little bit more detailed. It has a uh, metal skeleton inside of it for more, um, I guess, diverse or just, just more posability. Essentially, the 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 articulation on it is much more than the the normal Black Series figures would allow, um, and pretty much right on par with what Hot Toys figures allow too. And so there, there's a little bit more detail on the sculpt since it's a bigger figure. It's uh, eight inches instead of the normal six inches for Hasbro's Black Series line. Uh, it's uh, I don't know if I've said it already, but it's it's a Darth Vader figure is the is the first figure in this line, and um, it's not necessarily the best example of what they can do with this line because Vader is not necessarily a character who requires a lot of flexibility and his his design and his suit is pretty basic so you don't really get too much of a sense of how detailed these figures can be um but the sculpt of his his suit and the helmet is done pretty pretty well and the the body is interesting because it's a metal skeleton inside the figure uh so the arms and legs the stuff that aren't his armor and his cape are um it's a like a very flexible rubber so when you touch it, it almost feels like one of those cheap, stretchy rubber uh, like figures that you can buy that don't break because they just bend and you can move them in any position. But because the skeleton is inside of it, it has a certain uh, rigidity to it where you you do have to like you know um, work a little bit harder, I guess you would say, to move it and pose it. But uh, it's it's a very cool figure. It uh, it comes with a bunch of different hands so that you can have him either you use like a do a force push or uh, point or have his arms folded with his with his fists or uh, things like that. He comes with his lightsaber and he comes with like this um, basically what is a, a laser blast deflection uh, accessory that you can put on his force hand that makes it look like he's deflecting a bolt, but it, it looks like kind of just a a white explosion on his hand so it doesn't have quite the same effect it almost looks like he's shooting ice out of his hand which is kind of weird um and it's a pretty cool figure i'm not necessarily sure that it's worth the price point because this figure i think retails for like 80 dollars uh on shelves and for like um the hot toys figures are definitely more expensive but you get a lot more quality and uh accessories and things like that with it as well as detail and I wish, like, for this kind of price point, since it's literally, like, it's four times as much as a Black Series figure, that they would have done something a little bit 
extra for it, like have the lightsaber uh, have the ability to light up or uh, at least put like a wire uh, inside of his cape to allow for, you know, to pose the cape, you know, for cool stances and stuff like that. But besides that, it's uh, it's it's a pretty cool figure. They've already announced that the next one they're doing is uh, Luke Skywalker in his Bespin gear. So it'll be interesting to see how that figure compares and how uh, it works when you have an actual, you know, person that's flesh and has uh, a face sculpt to see how, how much the detail works with it. So, uh, so yeah, the hyper-real uh, Darth Vader figure from Hasbro, uh, I think it's out on shelves now. So keep an eye out for it. Uh, sounds to me like it's not quite collectible yet. It, it, it's more of a, it's still more of a toy. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's like, it, it's somewhere in between. Cause like it, it does have a very collectible look about it and the way that you can pose it. Uh, it's, it's made to be posed on, on a shelf. Um, it comes with, even comes with like a little base, um, that looks like it's part of like the Death Star foil, like basically like the base that he kneels on when he talks to the emperor. It looks kind of like that. Um, so it's it's somewhere in between because it's it's a little too heavy duty to be uh, like a toy that you would play with. Um, yeah. it, it definitely has a collectible you know feel to it. You know what I miss? I miss the unleashed uh, things that they used to do for Star Wars. That was Hasbro, right? I think so. Yeah, and th- those were pretty cool. They had they were like um, basically like kind of like cheaper plastic statues essentially that had them in like much more realistic. Uh, looking designs and they but they had like the lightsabers um like the, there was like a wave of them if they were like getting ready to hit something or there was flames around them and stuff they were they were pretty cool yeah i feel like from afar on a shelf you couldn't tell the difference between that and like a sideshow collectible statue but uh like i i guess that's my problem with like action figures on a shelf like you can tell that they're action figures yeah they they have gotten better though um cuz i like the the Black Series figures, especially, um, now that they have, they, they use 3D printing technology for the faces. So the the face sculpts are now, they now actually look very much like the actors who play the characters, which makes the, the figures, um, it just, it adds a, a much different feel to them. It, it makes them feel less like toys. Uh, and Marvel Legends does the same thing, because that, that's also created by Hasbro. And I've been collecting a lot of the Avengers figures, uh, and the face sculpts for for all those characters are in, are awesome too. Very cool. That does it for us on today's episode. You can find more of all of our work at slashfilm.com. You can find this podcast slashfilm daily, published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at slashfilm.com, and please head on over to our iTunes page, give us a five star review, tell your friends. Spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow. Hey. Hey, Peter. Oh, no. J- Jacob, uh, it- it's okay. I survived. <coughs> I survived the hurricane. I survived the humidity. I, I-, I can take this. And-, and you know what? HT is now in the color of cult, or the cult of color. So so we're, we're-, we're-, we're fine. You we- can't defeat me. Yes. Peter, I said, um, um, uh-huh. I've opened the gargantuan book of insults, <laughs> offense, and affrontery, sharp retorts, reposts, caustic quips, and implied put down by Louis A. Sapien. Yeah. To the crabs section. Crabs <laughs> section. Wait, there's a. What kind oh, of crabs? Are, 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 is this animal crabs, or is this like. T, everyone has a good <laughs> word for her. They all whisper it. Ah. Uh. Ben, he has an open mind. It should be closed for repairs. <laughs> Brad, 
arguing with him is like trying to blow out an electric light bulb. Uh, okay. <laughs> and Peter, he has a disposition like an untipped waiter. Peter, did you hear? A disposition like an untipped waiter. <laughs> you didn't Peter quite say has it. a disposition like an untipped waiter. <laughs> I, I don't understand what this has to do with crabs. I don't either. They're, 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 gr- they're grumpy. Oh, yeah, they're grumps. They're crabby. Oh. oh Peter, you're so disagreeable, your own shadow will keep you company. That's not good, Jacob. They're not ben, good. Ben, you're so contrary. You do everything verse vice. Yeah, Ben. <laughs> First play. That, that one's funny. I, I like that one. See, the book brought some joy today. No, see, Peter, you just you just created a problem. You just you gave a mouse a cookie, and now we are fucked. <laughs> now we have to drink this glass of milk forever. Uh, there's only 300 more pages. 